Welcome to the Uncanny Valley, where the familiar becomes strange and the truth isn't what it seems. Here, we peel back the layers of reality, uncovering secrets hidden just beneath the surface. Every shadow whispers a story. Every silence screams a hidden tale. Join us as we journey into the depths of the unknown, where each turn is a puzzle and every answer leads to more questions. Are you ready to look beyond? Welcome back to the Uncanny Valley podcast. I'm Brittany, and I'm here with my husband, Dakota. And we're your friends. That's what I always want to say. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, we discussed the entrepreneur and co-founder of the company OpenAI, Sam Altman. Now, the reason that we brought Sam Altman up last week is because he is a really big key player in the developing arms race of AI as a whole and is friends with some really interesting billionaires, which we're going to get into in this episode. So something that we discussed at the end of last week's episode was how Sam Altman is a prepper. Now, a prepper is somebody who is basically prepping for doomsday or the end of the world. Think zombie apocalypse scenario where you might have a silo buried somewhere in your backyard with tons of canned food those boxes of gross food that last 20 years. You might have ammo, a bunch of water, and you're basically prepping for the worst to happen. It's really interesting when a rich person or somebody who is in an elite field like Silicon Valley is open about being a prepper because usually when people think of preppers, they might think of somebody who is just crazy living out in the woods and is being scared for nothing. I think we should pay attention whenever it's somebody this prominent being open about it. This is from an interview from The New Yorker in 2016, where Sam Altman said, quote, I prep for survival. My problem is that when my friends get drunk, they talk about the ways the world will end. After a Dutch lab modified the H5N1 bird flu virus five years ago, making it super contagious, the chance of a lethal synthetic virus being released in the next 20 years became, well, non-zero. The other most popular scenarios would be AI that attacks us and nations fighting with nukes over scarce resources. He continued, But I have guns, gold, potassium iodide, antibiotics, batteries, water, gas masks from the Israeli Defense Force, and a big patch of land in Big Sur I can fly to. But in the same article, the author Tad Friend noted that, quote, If the pandemic does come, Altman's backup plan is to fly with his friend Peter Thiel to Thiel's house in New Zealand. What we're going to be talking about in this episode is why billionaires even have land in New Zealand and why it has become a refuge of choice for Silicon Valley's tech elite. So again, for a lot of this information to make sense in this episode, you really need to go back and listen to last week's episode because a lot of the key people we're talking about, we further explained in last week's video, like Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is a huge player in Silicon Valley and in the startup area. He's the co-founder of PayPal, and he's also the first outside investor into Facebook. So he's a huge influence in Silicon Valley and in how these companies get formed, what companies get formed, 
and has a lot of experience in the startup phase. Like we talked about last week, before Facebook, Sam Altman helped co-found Looped, which was one of the first of its kind social media platforms before Facebook. And we were talking about how Facebook was formed on the same exact day as the quote ended DARPA project called LifeLog, where DARPA wanted to basically create a platform for people to reveal tons of information about them, such as their interests, who they hang out with, how they talk, and catalog all that information into one place. Well, think about Facebook. People post what they're eating, where they're going, what they're doing, and has already gotten itself in a lot of trouble with what kind of data it's using and scraping from people. So Peter Thiel not only founded PayPal, which was also founded by Elon Musk, and helping be one of the first outside investors for Facebook. He's all over the scene. And as of June 2023, Thiel has an estimated net worth of $9.7 billion. So when I say he's a billionaire, he's a billions heir. So why does Sam Altman have this backup plan of flying to New Zealand to go to Thiel's basically compound? In 2018, The Guardian released an article called Why Silicon Valley Billionaires Are Prepping for the Apocalypse in New Zealand. In this article, they were recapping the same quote from the New Yorker of Sam Altman saying that he would fly to New Zealand with Thiel. And what the author had to say was really telling. Mark O'Connell... <laughs> Number 14. Mark O'Connell. <laughs> I have to close my eyes. Why? I'm not even doing anything. Because <laughs> the number 14 thing. <laughs> number 14. How extreme libertarian track predicting the apocalypse. In an article by Mark O'Connor, an, an author for The Guardian, recapped everything I just talked about with Sam Altman. And how he would get on a private jet and fly to New Zealand if an apocalypse situation were to break out. But something that was really interesting from this article was the quote, The plan from this point, you'd have to assume, was to sit out the collapse of civilization before re-emerging to provide seed funding for, say, the insect-based protein sludge market. I just thought that quote was really interesting because... As a lot of you guys have probably seen in the news, the idea of elites trying to make us poor people eat crickets and bugs as protein to be more green Green. and eco-friendly has really, they're really trying to shove that idea down our throats, both literally and hypothetically. Something out of the scene of Snowpiercer. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. So again, we were talking about in the last episode, how whenever these elites say something, A lot of times they're hiding in plain sight with what they're really trying to say. So Sam Altman saying a really infectious disease could break out. This was in 2016, four years before COVID. And then we have this Guardian article talking about how there could be an insect sludge market. So back to Thiel. Peter Thiel has a 477 acre former sheep station in South Zealand in New Zealand. Zealand, New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of land. Yeah. Usually to purchase that significant amount of land, the purchaser has to go through a large vetting process from the government. However, Phil was able to do it pretty easily because he had become a citizen of New Zealand, despite only being in New Zealand for 12 days up to that point and not being back since. He didn't even have to travel to New Zealand to get his citizenship conferred, it turned out, 
and the deal was sealed in a private ceremony at a consulate handily located in Santa Monica. What's really interesting about this is that for most normal people to become a citizen of New Zealand, they have to live in the country for at least five years. But I think it would be fair to assume that with him being so rich, he was able to surpass the normal rules that everyday people would have to follow in order to become a citizen. And this is not just specific to Peter Thiel. There's a huge history of other very, very rich elite being able to get access into New Zealand. For example, the well-known hacker and entrepreneur of Mega Upload, Kim.com, he visited New Zealand for 10 days in 2008 and then again a year later for two months. Then he applied for residency and received it in 2010. So the immigration of New Zealand made this decision on his application despite his convictions in multiple countries and his huge rap sheet. Officials officially said that they used special discretion to waive good character requirements of becoming a citizen to New Zealand. This is very coincidental because Warwick Tuck, head of immigration of New Zealand, said that .com had been granted residency as a, quote, investor plus, somebody who invests $10 million into New Zealand. He basically bought his way into New Zealand's citizenship. He basically just skipped over the process that a normal person would be to become a citizen of New Zealand. This was at the time for .com, a huge media controversy, and there was tons of other things with it, um, but I just thought it was interesting that on paper we have another person who very clearly and very coincidentally, almost the same amount of days and kind of time that he even spent in New Zealand, skip the whole citizenship process and be able to just basically buy his way into the country. Why are these elites able to just skip over the process so easily without even spending at least a month in the country? Theo was only there for 12 days, and whenever he was confirmed to become a citizen, he didn't even have to be in the country to become a citizen. He was in Santa Monica. That's not normal behavior unless there's a lot of money and power behind these decisions, which with these two is likely the case. I don't want to say it is the case because I'm not trying to get sued. A lot of you guys might be thinking, which is something that I was thinking when researching this, is why New Zealand? Why why are a lot of people, why are a lot of rich people, elite people, and even normal everyday Americans or Canadian citizens moving to New Zealand? I think the answer comes from this 1997 book called The Sovereign Individual, How to Survive and Thrive During the Collapse of the Welfare State. So basically, these two authors, Davison and Reedsmog, are avid libertarians who don't believe in the government as an entity. This is their opinion on the government. The democratic state nation basically operates as a criminal cartel, forcing honest citizens to surrender large portions of their wealth to pay for stuff like roads, hospitals, and schools. Now, that's a true statement. We have to pay tons of taxes in order for the society we have right now to function, but also to line the pockets of politicians because if anybody's ever driven in a road in America or gone to school, I'm pretty positive that the majority of my taxes are not going towards that because there's potholes down every single road, every <laughs> single school. Here's a fun little story. When I was in high school and in middle school, our school actually received donations from a prison for benches and outdoor seating. Why was my school receiving donations from the prison 
why was a prison better off in the first place to even be in a place to get new furniture? And the school <laughs> and the children get the leftovers. Yeah. Now, I haven't actually read this book. I've just taken excerpts from it. But I think it's something that if I were to read, we could do an entire video about. So let us know down below in the comments if you guys would like to almost get a book review. Because this book had a lot of things in it for 1997 that came true or that we are foreseeing coming true now. So basically this book can be broken down into four parts and this I'm getting this four part breakdown from the same Mark O'Connell article from The Guardian and this is what he had to say about the book. So in the book they're essentially saying that this is what could lead to the collapse of society and this is also coming from the view of very libertarian individuals who don't believe that the government is an entity that should exist. And that's what they had to say about our current system right now. Second, the rise of the internet and the advent of cryptocurrencies will make it impossible for governments to intervene in private transactions and to tax incomes, thereby liberating individuals from the political protection racket of democracy. So again, this is from 1997 and the idea of cryptocurrency would not have been on the minds of anybody at that time. We barely or had the it internet. would have been a very, very new thought and being explored. Um, you know, cryptography and everything was very much at a late stage. It was very well known. But the thought of cryptocurrency, applying cryptography to a currency in a technological form would be a very, very new thought. And I think it's very interesting that this 1997 book references that specifically. And what do we see right now? We, we see the SEC and the United States government trying to regulate cryptocurrency. They're talking about classifying them as securities so they fall under the SEC. Or how can we regulate this because of these bad actors? And whether or not you believe in cryptocurrency as a form of trading back and forth or whether you see it as an investment, I think it's a huge player in keeping private citizens' transactions private and away from the prying eyes of government. That's what the authors are stating in this book. Then the book talks about how the state will consequently become obsolete as a political entity. What I'm gathering from this is that if we have the ability to have a cryptocurrency that is truly private, then the government cannot stick their fingers into private citizens' financial affairs. And then the last part of the book talks about basically a new world order. So out of this wreckage will emerge a new global dispensation in which a cognitive elite will rise to power and influence as a class of sovereign individuals commanding vastly greater resources who will no longer be subject to the power of nation states and will redesign governments to suit their ends. And the authors specifically identify New Zealand as an ideal location for this new class of sovereign individuals as a quote, domicile, meaning permanent home, of choice for wealth creation in the information age, end quote. And then I took this specific quote from the book itself, quote, demagogues like Winston Peters, the leaders of the New Zealand First Party, are too lazy to think originally about how the new world will function. But in due course, Winston and his crew will be tipped off to the logic of the information economy. They will seek to halt the diffusion of computers, robotics, telecommunications, encryptions, and other information age technologies that are facilitating the displacement of workers in almost every sector of the global economy. Wherever you turn, there are politicians who will gladly thwart the prospects 
for a long-term prosperity just to prevent individuals from declaring their independence of politics. Winston Peters has been in New Zealand politics for a really long time. So he's basically been a member of their government since 1979 and was just re-elected for the 15th time during their 2023 general election. So the person that they're talking about has been in politics for a really long time. I think it's very telling that it's saying they will seek to halt the diffusion of computers, robotics, and other information age technologies in relation to New Zealand being part of the five eyes. Now the five eyes is a collection coalition of Australia, Canada, United States, and the United Kingdom, and essentially is an intelligence alliance that allows the other intelligence agencies of these countries to spy on each other. Now the CIA cannot spy on you legally and cannot legally wiretap you at will. They need to go through the legal process, whether this be a private court or a normal public court order, they need to go through this process to be able to do it. Now, if Canada's intelligence agency wiretaps you or logs into your bank account or tracks your location and our intelligence agency turns a blind eye to it, there's no harm, no foul in there. Another country does not need to follow the laws of a different entity. That's not how it works. So this coalition allows them to skirt the laws and protections of the citizens of these other countries. I think it's really telling that whenever this quote is saying that they will basically step in and try to block the normal person from getting these technologies and the prospects and long-term prosperities of these of using them of these technologies and using them and i think that there's a whole lot behind the five eyes and behind other coalitions and uh, projects like it but i just think it's really interesting that on paper we even have a actual already existing alliance that we can point to and say and that they are actively already doing these things Thiel isn't the only person who owns a significant amount of land in New Zealand or just property in general in New Zealand. The director of the Titanic movie, James Cameron, also owns a 3,700 square foot organic farm in Wairarapa. I had to like spell it. I don't know. Why is he Harappa? And after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the amount of Americans applying for a grant of citizenship into New Zealand increased by 70% within 12 weeks following his election. As we were saying earlier, usually for somebody to become a citizen of New Zealand, they have to live there for at least five years. A lot of normal people were fleeing to New Zealand because they thought the world was going to end after Trump was elected. And that's a really significant jump within 12 weeks. And it was not just... The United States citizens, I remember seeing reports at the time that um, Canadian citizens were also fleeing the country because they were worried about the effects of Donald Trump being president on Canada and what it could possibly bring to them. So it was many, many countries fleeing to the safe haven of New Zealand. And with Peter Thiel owning thousands of acres, you have to remember that New Zealand is a little island. It is not a huge continent like the United States. So he owns a really big portion of it. And even owning any land there is a big deal. A lot of the land in New Zealand is undeveloped. Think of Lord of the Rings. That's where it was filmed. A lot of movies have been filmed there because it's very untouched. And another reason why a lot of people are moving to New Zealand is because it's a lot cheaper to purchase land or homes there compared to where a lot of these Silicon Valley people live, like California or New York. It's also only a 10-hour flight from California, so it really doesn't take that long to get there, and especially if you have your own private jet. And then we have Reed Hoffman. 
This was another person who helped co-found OpenAI and was a co-founder of LinkedIn. He told Evan Osnos of The New Yorker in 2017, quote, Saying you're buying a house in New Zealand is kind of a wink, wink, say no more. Once you've done the Masonic handshake, they'll be like, oh, you know, I have a broker who sells old ICBM silos and they're nuclearly hardened and they kind of look like they would be interesting to live in, end quote. So again, a lot of these people who have founded OpenAI, a lot of these elite billionaires and just entrepreneurs, people in the tech space. Own property in New Zealand and are furnishing a prepper's haven in New Zealand. But only for those elite enough to be into this space. And again, as we keep reiterating, when they say jokes like, once you've done the Masonic handshake, I'm sure it was said pretty tongue in cheek, but I don't think that's a joke or that that's not true that most of these people are likely Freemasons. And New Zealand does have a Grand Lodge called the Grand Lodge of Antient Free and Accepted Masons of New Zealand. And a Grand Lodge, just for those who aren't familiar with Freemasonry, is basically the governing body of the smaller Freemason lodges within a particular area. And it's not unusual that New Zealand has their own Grand Lodge. It's kind of surprising that they only have one, but showing how small it is, it makes sense. So, for example, there are Grand Lodges of Alabama, Arizona, Florida, even Washington, D.C. And I can't say for sure whether Thiel is a Freemason or not because he's never publicly said he is or isn't. But if you have $9.3 billion and you know anything about these kind of people, I can almost say for certain that he likely is. And with the influence that he has within Silicon Valley and the amount that his net worth is and the people he would know, I would say there is a high likely chance that he is a Freemason or at least has some sort of connections to Masonry. We weren't able to find anything that directly ties him to any sort of lodge or anything like that, but I think it was just specifically being in relation to New Zealand. I think it's interesting. This is our third episode on AI in general. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode or the week before, you should really go back and listen to them. A lot of the information in this video is gonna make a lot more sense and it'll put a lot of the pieces together of why we're even talking about this. So stay tuned to hear more on what we have to say about AI. I can just tell you that the series is just getting better and better with each episode and you're not gonna wanna miss the next one. I don't wanna spoil anything, but it's going to be really juicy and a really good episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate you making it to this part of the episode. If you're on YouTube or a place where you can comment, if you've made it this far, comment down below a tree emoji so that we know that you made it to this part of the video. And if you have any future idea requests for podcasts that you would like to hear, also leave that down below in the comments and we would love to possibly make it into a future podcast. We'll see you guys next time. We'll see you guys in New Zealand, in our mansion. And now a word from our kitten, Copper. Stay golden. <laughs> Sorry, I was expecting something more. No, I know, because I never You're said that, though. No, 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 I need to end the episode. Bye. <laughs> see ya. Okay, is that it? We'll see you guys next time.